Hey everyone, I'm your host Piers Kicks and welcome back to Metaverse Musings, which is a research-focused podcast that's part of Delphi Digital. We explore the integral components behind what many believe will be the internet's successor, a virtual extension of the natural world where most of us will eventually live, work and play. To some, it represents our next great milestone as a network species, and to others, it is something to fear. With our guests, we discuss the technology, philosophy and culture behind this brave new world. If you're not yet subscribed to the Delphi Research Portal, then I fear for your soul. You're missing out on the most incisive analysis that the digital asset space has to offer. Seriously, check it out. Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. This podcast features sponsors and any ads are not an endorsement by Delphi Digital and are for informational purposes only. Hey guys, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Metaverse Musings. Actually, it's, it's number 10 today, and I must admit I'm spending significantly more time in VR than when we started out. I'm very excited to welcome Crucible back to the podcast. In a thrilling display of agility, Ryan has managed to escape London and survive the pandemic. We also have the absolute privilege of being joined by Toby, CTO, who I believe is currently down in Australia. Welcome aboard, guys. It's great to have you back here. Thanks, Piers. It's great to be here. And yeah, I'm in Melbourne, Australia at the moment. To kick things off... As a little refresher, can we get the uh, elevator pitch for Crucible to make sure that people who missed the um, first episode are on the same page? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're a company that builds technology uh, in order to create blueprints for an open metaverse. Awesome. Um, yeah, Toby, could could we kind of um, get a get an overview of your of your personal backgrounds, um, how you met Ryan, and and sort of what made you guys decide to do business together? Excuse me, sorry. Um, yeah, by all means, I've been developing for about 22 years professionally. I've been trying to climb into the computer since I was about seven. So I, I see things in my head a certain way, and I've been wanting to, to build this kind of technology for a long time. Um, it, it's all sort of started coming together in the last couple of uh, couple of years, and I joined a, a, what seemed to be a promising startup with people who got the ideas, and I kind of expanded that out and Ryan had started a lot of the ideas behind that and, you know, we got to know each other really well. The startup experience turned out to be not the best. Um, but uh, in the aftermath, Ryan and I kind of worked together, um, just kind of trying to keep the, the same energy alive. Because we're very different people, but we have very similar ethics and very similar ideas of, you know, where the metaverse is going to go, where computing is going to go. Uh, and, and it is a desire to try and help make it go the right way. Mm. So, yeah, you mentioned you have some sort of similar ideas on that. What would you say are some of the, the, the kind of core uh, unifying thesis that, that kind of motivated you to do this together? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is the underlying idea of sovereignty, um, of technology being there for people. You know, when the web was designed, it was never designed with any of this in mind. Um, you know, there were plenty of mistakes, deliberate and otherwise, made in building social media, but no one could quite predict what would happen with communication at this scale. You know, now we know those things and the various other technologies come together to give us an opportunity to do them the right way. And I think user sovereignty, self-sovereign identity, these kinds of ideas where users are back in control of their identity and their data and can interact you know, safely and on a, an equitable level with everybody, that takes us down a different path to the one we're currently on, which is where, you know, we're owned and operated by lots of different people and spied on and tracked and don't really have a lot of say in how we do things. Mm. 
It's um, it's been I think a, a good few months now since since Ryan was last on the podcast. What have you guys been focused on uh, on building? Um, we're building an SDK. So um, the SDK drops into game engines. So that's where we're starting. It also works for for web servers and things like that. But at the moment, we're dropping in, uh, and I guess it's a t- toolkit you can add to your own games and and virtual worlds or VR experiences, what have you. Uh, that allows you to really easily make use of uh, advanced encrypted technology like uh, self-sovereign identity, you know, end-to-end encryption, encrypted communications, um, blockchain interactions, working with tokens and NFTs, uh, you know, a, a lot of advanced sort of things like this without having to do any of the work yourself. You can even use it to bring in primary and secondary marketplaces, you know, create user-generated content marketplaces, that kind of stuff. So the idea is the SDK drops in, you wire up these things that you want, and you've got all of these extra uh, abilities for your game and for your players. But what the players get is this agent. You know, we're building this concept of a an agent, which is, it's both your agency and your intercessor. You know, it's how it works for you on the internet and manages things for you, but it is also how you interact with the internet and with your digital property, with your life, with your identity. Uh, and it's available to you everywhere in every game you play on the website, on a mobile app. And you've got, you know, your digital inventory, you've got all of your tokens and skins and avatars and things like that. You've got universal control of all your different kinds of accounts, whether they're normal ones or cryptocurrency. And you've got access to all of your friends via encrypted connections that only you control. No one else can sort of track who you're talking to or with or what you're doing. No one can take those connections away from you. No one can deplatform you as you put stuff out on your personal feeds. You know, you've got everything under your control. And that, that's the, what we're excited about, to get that SDK into the hands of the people who are um, lining up for the alpha. Absolutely, sounds sounds super exciting for the uh, for the user there. What are some of the uh, kind of core uh, components that go into this SDK then? Um, so, the way it manifests is you have a little sort of icon that shows you your current persona. You know, that's the key thing we layer on top of the anonymity of SSI. We give you the ability to have multiple personas. So that's you know ongoing names that you would use, like you do currently on Facebook or Twitter or any game that you can attach various behaviors and defaults to and, and speak to people as contacts under, but you can change them. I might have one for work, <clears throat> excuse me, which is my real name and it's a few bits and pieces about me. It's got a real avatar I use in teleconferencing, all these sorts of things. But it, it could also be switched to my gaming handle, Pillage, uh, you know, and it would choose the avatars I use for gaming and share different kinds of information, use different contact lists, those sorts of things. So I should be easily able to switch between these sorts of things no matter what I'm doing. You know, I can be playing Elder Scrolls, call up my contact list and, and have a, an encrypted chat with my mate who's playing Roblox somewhere else. You know? mm. And you mentioned um, also the inventory aspect. So I'd be able to sort of track all of my different game assets and, and skins and whatnot from uh, different, different kind of games. Um, how are you approaching that aspect of things? Yeah, early on, the inventory is quite key. Um, so the, the, roadmap starts with the SSI and the authentication, the ability to create a context, and then immediately goes into this inventory. So the idea is people don't, people want to participate in these new technologies and markets and interesting things that are happening in in the growing metaverse, you know, whether it's skins in Fortnite or buying NFTs or digital art or getting some avatars of their own to use. But it's all very complicated. It all goes in hundreds of different places. You've got wallets and accounts and things everywhere. 
So using the agent interface, you can just connect to all of these things and they just appear in your inventory, like when you pick up a sword in a game. It's just a thing that's there. It's got a nice picture. You can look at some details about it. If you want to give it to someone or sell it to someone, you can. It's just all kind of drag and drop. Anything you need, like crypto or encryption or SSI wallets, all these sorts of things, just get created under the hood. You've got total access to everything because it's sovereign software. You know, you can take your info and go somewhere else. All your contacts, all your data, it's all encrypted, but it's all kept on your device. But now everywhere you go, you've sort of you've got access to that and it's backed up by your personal stack in the cloud on a decentralized network where your data is stored securely and your identity is backed up. So now I can go to the, the latest gallery of uh, digital art and go, yeah, I want one of those. And it'll load up my inventory, it'll make the sale, uh, and I'll, it'll appear in my inventory, and then I can use it. Or I can go and get myself a 3D avatar and start buying digital clothing for it. Go into the, the wardrobe, put that clothing on my avatar, take interesting pictures and, and send them out to Instagram, or perhaps go and wear that avatar with that clothing uh, in a, a world where I can um, play a game or go to a concert or what have you. So, so perhaps from the developer uh, perspective, um, how do the actual sort of individual game integrations work with something like that? Let's say I'm a big fan of, um, I don't know, Crypto Voxels and Axie Infinity and also some game on EOS, for example, like the upcoming Blancos Block Party. Um, how, how would uh, it sort of manage those different uh, like NFT standards? Well, there's a couple of ways I think it's significant. The, the, the interface kind of adapts itself uh, to suit the kind of behavior you want to use it for. You know, if, if I, I could go into my collector's mode and now I've got an inventory that is tailored to going through my collections of NFTs, whether they're digital art or their clothing or their, you know, collector's cards or what have you. And all these NFTs are going to come from different places. So under the hood, the system treats everything like an inventory item and just manages the connection sort of back and forth to wherever. So when you first um, load uh, an NFT that you've bought, um, let's say from outside the system, it'll bring it in, keep a copy of it there so you can see it and play with it. But under the hood, it's just taking care of whatever connections you need. Um, if you need to have wallets and such created, it'll do as much as it can without needing your permission, um, without bothering you. Um, you know, where it does need your permission, we'll say we're getting you set up so you can put some money in this and buy this thing, et cetera, et cetera. Just really trying to not obfuscate, but really simplify the process of getting involved in these these different markets. Um, so mm. it, it gives the, the, the game developer the ability to sort of really easily load up those capabilities. Like if you are, uh, you've got an existing world game and a multiplayer game that works, you could tie in anything from just using the um, the sort of future-proof security and authentication to um, you know making your game chat the same as the chat that comes along with the agent system. You can mm. you know we're we're really trying as Crucible not to be you know not to be like the brand the company that owns the 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 metaverse in in Ready Player One. We we want to be somebody behind the scenes helping put things together so that the whole thing grows openly and in a community basis. So, you know, we're, we're white label, we'll try and sort of step back, but we're, we're trying to set up our SDK so that if you are an indie and you want an advanced inventory system, you can pull up the inventory system that comes with the SDK and just use that, just tie your stuff in. Or, mm. you know, you can make it look like the way you want it, or you can just make it so that your game gets a bit meta and the inventory system is using the agent app that pops up. You know, so you start to get this idea of playing your games sort of 
between each other and across worlds. Sure. I really like that uh, sort of modular approach to building this and, and letting the actual game creators sort of pick and choose. When it comes to something like um, the sort of uh, goods, the virtual goods standards, um, would you have like a, a recommended path of action for a developer that maybe has an existing game or is building one but has no um, familiarity with things like NFTs in order to let them sort of tap into this growing universe of potential and cross-game economies and stuff? What would your sort of recommended approach be? Well, it's an interesting thing to look at. You know, the, the standard concept of an NFT is, is a token on Ethereum. And granted, the Ethereum network is established and has a lot of stuff there, but it also has a lot of problems in terms of you know, fees and, and transfer. It depends very much on what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, it, it's a really new field. It's not something you want to put an enormous amount of money in without having an idea of what's going on just yet because it's really nice and tech and, and mm. use for it. But I think it's going to be the way forward. What I'm seeing is, you know, we have this conversation um, that when someone buys an expensive handbag, they're not really paying for the handbag or even for the design. What they're paying for is the number inside it that can be verified and proved that, yes, I have paid a stupid amount of money for a really fancy handbag. <clears throat> and that's really what the NFT is. It is proof of ownership of something and in interesting ways because it's digital and crypto it can also be sort of embedding the thing that you're owning itself but it's it is going to be the new way of buying and selling things online particularly anything that's collectible um, anything you want to sort of get into and have lots of or or anything that is particularly unique like a piece of art or something like that mm. yeah i just it's one thing i remain really curious about is um you know, the, 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 the best way to sort of approach this problem, um, gr granted, it is still super early on and whatnot, but uh, obviously the sort of cross game economies and stuff is one aspect that I'm super excited about and, and curious to see what the uh, more sort of, you know, compelling solutions are. Um, recently had a mutable X on here who are also, they're actually uh, Sydney based and they seem to have a really, really interesting uh, setup. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, what is it then that you guys believe both, I suppose, from a business perspective, Ryan, if you could give some color and then from on the technical side, what, what you guys think is uh, sort of different about your approach that sets you apart from others? Yeah, so when um, when we talked last, it was the end of July. And now, several months later, I feel even more confident about our specific approach to kind of tailor Web3 for gaming. Um, and it's a distinction that's subtle, but most of what's happening in the industry is blockchain gaming, right? Uh, where really kind of the, the main focus is crypto first and in a lot of cases, Ethereum first. Um, I think what really sets us apart and what we hope to really kind of drive much more momentum into is the, uh, the sort of technical aspects of the blockchain falling to the background and using these tools to tailor them specifically for what game developers need with the player in mind first. And I think, you know, as long as we keep that as our true north, that's going to be the thing that really differentiates us. Sure. Um, yeah, Toby, did you want to add any color on the technical side? Yeah, I think that's the thing, really. Um, you know, I'm not the guy that makes the crazy, clever crypto algorithms. I take his tech and her tech and, and their tech and I bang them all together really hard until something new comes out. And, you know, I'm trying to help create a world I've been trying to get into for a very long time. And I think there are a lot of people out there who are building all of the parts, 
but people don't have the impetus, the, the reason or the business case to go and build all the stuff in between or sort of work across their silos. And just because of the way my brain is, that's where I like to be. And Ryan and I sit in the same place. We see the same future. So we're finding this approach of going to all these different companies and saying, look, we'd like to take on the work of being the middleman, finding ways to not force standards upon everybody, but find ways for them all to converge in a way that everybody can play with. And that, I think that's the thing. That's what we really want. And I think that's going to be our unexpected difference if we make it. I hope that's one of the things that people will notice about us is we're not doing this for any other reason than this is what we feel is needed, you know. Um, I can't stop working. This is what I do. And I think given the world we're in, you do what you can. And this is what I can do, so this is what I'm doing. <laughs> Um, you know, Ryan feels the same way. And I think there are ways that we can make technology fair and safe and make it finally be the voice for people that it should be. And also one, one thing to note that's been increasingly clear to me is we've always kind of referred to ourselves as uh, the spaces in between. And um, a lot of what you hear from companies, even if they are open-minded, is is sort of, you know, very much just focusing on their domain and and doing it in kind of a proprietary way where they're building something in-house that is for the benefit of their company and their shareholders. Um, we, from the very uh, from the very jump of our company, have set the precedent of being native to the spaces in between, and mm -hmm. I think it gives us a pretty unique position within the uh, within the industry as a whole to kind of look at everyone as potential satellites in this ecosystem that we're helping to kind of enhance and grow over time. It's not something that we're doing in-house. It's something that we're creating to rise the tide for everyone. And I think the nature of what we're trying to create, if successful, specifically prevents us from owning the user space. You know, so we're not, we're not trying to capture anything. We don't really have to compete with anybody. Ultimately, we want to create a new paradigm of computing that lets people just get on with what they're doing and do it in a way that's safe and for them. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> definitely think it's a super interesting angle of attack. Um, and as, as you said, it's something you've been focused on and thinking about for a really long time. Um, I guess, given all of the experience and insights that, that you know you would, you would have gained from wondering about this for so long, what would you say are some of the sort of unique and important considerations when building technologies towards um, you know, the metaverse, I suppose? Um, well, there are a number of things. Ownership is the first, you know, and, and it's, it's one of the most important. It's not just about not having one company own everything. That's obviously not a good thing. It's about everybody having a piece. You know, it's, it's not about technology being dribbled out to the few by those that have. It's about everybody being able to get what they need and get involved and then make something of it under their own steam. And so I think when you're looking at anything in the metaverse, you've got to think about the fact that you're no longer dealing with someone else's crappy website. You're not talking about a few hundred customers or you know, a few thousand clients. You're talking about billions of souls. Anyone who's building tech for the metaverse has got to think on the level of billions of souls. And the vast majority of whom are in somewhere alien to you. 
you know, they're differently abled, they're from a different background, they speak a different language, they don't use technology, they do use technology. It, it's, it's everything. And you've really got to make that the focus right from the start. And if that sounds like it adds a lot to what you're doing, it does. But if you're not willing to put that in, then you're not really trying to make something for everybody. And I think everybody's work has its place. But if you're really trying to build a metaverse, then you've got to make sure you're building it for everyone from day one or it's just going to get more and more wrong as time goes on, like we're seeing with machine learning. I was going to say, actually, there's one more thing I'd like to say um, in terms of advice for the metaverse. I start with all of that, um, partly because I'm a troublemaker and I, you know, I, I see what, what goes on and what needs to be done. But at the end of the day, no matter what's going on right now, the current generations have grown up, a lot of them, globally minded in one form or another, whether or not they realize it. And it's only going to get more so. And what we're seeing is a change in behavior online in the last six months that we hadn't predicted for five years at least. So we have a real opportunity here to do what couldn't be done in the 90s. We've got the tech, we've got the bandwidth, we've got an inordinate number of people cooperating to do things. And, you know, at Crucible, we've seen huge amounts of people, very big and small, all willing to sort of pitch in, put their heads together and, and help build something. So I think there's a real chance to make a real open metaverse here that can then be a playground for everything from business to just helping people with their lives. And just to build on that too, we, you know, we have uh, recently gone back to the kind of writing and thinking of web one um, and have found inspiration in the concepts of the internet is for the end user, right? Around the concepts of a user agent and, just the heuristics and the and the mental model of the way that web one was coming together. And then we saw that in web two, obviously, you know, this advertising model took over, it was completely optimized. And now we're really seeing the peak of how that's toxic for the democratic process and just humanity as a whole. And as we move from web two to web three, you know, we really want to reach back to some of the best ideas from web one. And um, so that's why we refer to what we're building with the interface as a user agent. And we really wanna come back to this idea that the internet is for the end user. Because with Web3, we do have a, a chance to kind of do it over again, you know, redesign and build from, from the beginning with a blank slate and learn from the past, you know, the things that have not worked so well without pointing fingers and blame. And really kind of going back to some of the the ideas that were overlooked, um, you know, and and give them, you know, an, another shot and and see if that's, that works better. That's really cool. Yeah, looking back to sort of chapter one of the web to to you know try and draw on some of those principles and ideas. I uh, think think that's a great 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 idea. Um, I was gonna just move on to um, you know. There's so much sort of doom and gloom out there about where we're heading. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm personally pretty spooked by where where we're at with uh, Oculus and Facebook. Not just because of my uh, growing PokerStars VR addiction, but um, what are some of the kind of exciting and encouraging things being worked on that are gaining actual traction out there? Well, you know, when it comes to this whole like Black Mirror um, kind of feeling that we all have, I, I look at that as really if if that's picking up momentum, 
and getting more adoption. And these companies are dominating more, and it seems that we're moving into more of a closed system. Then inherently, like in our gut, we all know that's not the world we want to live in. So it completely leaves the market underserved for something that serves people. And that's where we see such a big opportunity. So if you look at companies like Microsoft and how they've shifted in their their sort of macro view about a, you know business decisions on open source software, um, I think that's going to happen a lot more. And you know, with with the vehicle that we're creating, we hope to be uh, kind of a megaphone and and kind of an action plan for people to do that. But as long as things keep going in a way that is is scary you know that makes a world that we don't want to live in then there's always going to be built up demand for something that that is a little bit more uh promising and a future that's that's more exciting to think about mm, I, i'd say though part of the reason that uh it is perceived as so scary is that feeling of um you know helplessness um the idea that these wheels are already in motion and the roots run so deep of these big companies that there is like you know no escaping it so yeah i wonder where you know that the, <clears throat> those sources of hope um come from uh, and, and whether you guys have looked at any i don't know new standards initiatives groups um anything that's this sort of you know um quiets those concerns yeah i mean i think you you could point to right now we're really excited by the sort of Cambrian explosion of creativity that's happening. Um, you know, since we talked last, NFTs have have really, really picked up momentum, and um, it, it's very much been the beginning of this renaissance that I think we're going to see. So, uh, for so long, like the corporate world has devalued art, right? Like pushed it to commoditization and um, just scaled it and cheapened it as much as as they could for their own pockets. And now with NFTs, with this new technology, we're seeing that creators, creatives, artists can now reframe that and revalue their work and put it on auction. And in some cases, just like fine art. And, you know, we're seeing we're seeing professionals that are auctioning off their work for twenty, thirty, sixty thousand dollars, and it's just really starting. So when creators feel empowered and can use technology to reframe the scales and actually revalue their work then i think you know that's when we're going to see a lot uh, of new things being created and being created in a community based way where it's for everyone and i think in terms of hope it's an interesting thing to point out if you look at what we have now with global news media and social media we've never had it before we've never had this level of interconnectivity so we don't know what else it can be like you know people talk about the good old days of social media they never were any it's always been this ad based platform controlled system and what what i think people will be interested in is to see how different things can be when they realize that a lot of what they hear and what they see is just controlled through a very few places you know whether they mean it to be or not and there are ways that this can be done differently you know there we, we've we've thrown down the old gods of media and made new ones and they're exactly the same um and i think we can show people how all those gatekeepers can be either removed or moved into a more a less parasitic uh relation mm. 
I, I sincerely hope it is the case, but I just see, you know, take the Oculus and Facebook stuff. I just see it uh, becoming sort of further entrenched. We have one of the largest data monopolies on the planet with a proven track record of, of um, abusing that uh, privilege, that status. Um, now they've released obviously the Oculus Quest 2, which is insanely affordable for most people. It's really fucking good. Everyone that tries it loves it. And they're forcing every single user to go into their Facebook account system. Like, you know, be it floor plans, biometric data, like they're just adding to this, uh, you know, stack that they have. And that's something that I'm, I'm really worried about. Um, uh, and yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it, it's a vector. It's a vector that can go in the wrong direction, but you know, you have to remember that there's really no other option right now viable mm. with network effect where all your friends are there and you've spent so much time and it's so convenient and it's free, right? They have this really great offer. And, um, the truth is, I think we're all waking up to the fact that we were scammed. You know, Web2 has pretty much grown into a, a big scam. That's been uh, a huge cash grab for a very small number of people and has really enticed us to give everything up in the subtext, right? Like that we didn't even collectively realize was happening. I think you look at like, you know, the the, um, the documentaries on on Netflix are starting to kind of put more of a spotlight on it. And then definitely the political situation happening right now across the world uh, is, is showing more of it. But if things keep going that, in that direction and there's no other option, that's where you get 1984, right? That's where mm -hmm. you get sort of uh, humans enslaved by these nation states and this technology empire uh, that's only owned by a few. But if there is a, a bigger sort of growing open metaverse. If there's another option that is just as sleek, has, has UI that competes, right? It is a part of a mm. bigger thing that actually empowers you, then you don't have to choose the uh, closed system that you're locked into, right? Sure. Because consumers have choice. We talk about lock-in, like, you know, you can't leave Facebook, you can't take your friends with you, but you absolutely can stop using anything you want to. It's just that people don't because there's such a lack of other options. You know, sure. so I think if we can build an option uh, and create enough momentum and design it the right way so that it's built for scale, then there will be something else for people to choose. I think it's important to recognize though that in a lot of ways and you know the things like the Oculus make it a lot more intense with bioinformatics, you're looking at the fact that a lot of your data is out there. Uh, and I think one of the key parts of the sovereignty movement and various other, you know, standards bodies, it's about a social as well as a, a corporate and regulatory movement to make it anathema to hold people's personal data, let alone sell it. And that's that's mm -hmm. really where we've got to keep going. The technology will keep going to make sure that we've got the options for doing it the right way. I mean, that's what SSI is all about. But it will take working on the side of you know, building a user base to, to force corporates a certain way and also working on the, the regulation side of things where it becomes just too much of a risk to be holding people's personal data in a way that's not secure. Um, mm. So, you know, th there's going to be a push on both sides. Uh, yeah, I yeah, think that, beyond, uh, the point was a great one, actually, yeah. Makes beyond our company and our product specifically, we have a, a much broader vision with the consortium and it's really a way to collect... Uh, all the companies together that share this vision that feel the same anxieties and are doing something about it so that, you know, 
collectively, like, uh, you know, like, uh, like ants or something that the, the collective group of, of everyone is actually quite powerful um, and can eventually start to compete with, you know, the fang mindset that is so dominant right now. But keep in mind, 15, 20, 25 years ago, that didn't exist. And so mm -hmm. in that short period of time, they've dominated, you know, the whole world, which means mm -hmm. that in the next, you know, considering exponential change in the next 10 years, right, which is our roadmap specifically from 2020 to 2030, it's really viable that the whole world could look very different, you know, and, and that could absolutely go in either way. But like, why yeah. wake up and feel the dread and then just give into it when you can be a part of, you know, some something in the next 10 years that that changes that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad uh, there's companies like yours and, and people like you two who, uh, who are, you know, willing to fight the good fight, because I do. Um, yeah, I think more and more. I mean, I, I've followed this stuff uh, for years now. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not looking good from from my point of view. But that's why I guess we're all excited about everything being built around the open metaverse. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, Toby, did you want to jump in? Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, if you're a hacker or any kind of security person, it's exponentially worse. You know, it, it is a mess out there and everybody's suddenly online for absolutely everything. And, you know, um, all of the, the warnings and the things people have been talking about for a long time are suddenly uh, be, becoming noticed with, with scale. Um, but it, it's also encouraging people to finally do something about it. So, you know, it, it's one of the reasons you see a big surge in, um, you know, the, the commonplace or mainstreamness of, um, of hacking is that you've got a lot of people out there doing really good work in terms of showing us what is and isn't secure. And it's forcing companies to start going, all right, we have to take this seriously because even our customers are taking it seriously. Mm, I think that's a good point. You, you know, you mentioned it's sort of um, now starting to come to the fore, people starting to heed these warnings. But I guess my real concern lies in like, you know, these things were starting to bubble up to the surface like a good four plus years ago. And it's taken, there's that lag for it to get here. So we ask ourselves, you know, where's the actual threat now moving? Because there's going to be a trickle down effect before people catch on to it. And I instantly look to stuff like, again, that massive use a black hole that's going to be the quest bringing people into there and most consumers just aren't anywhere near as conscientious as you know you and i might be and i don't think once they're in they'll ever really care once they've passed through those you know pearly gates of uh the oculus quest um i'm not sure they'll want to leave so yeah i'm just yeah continue continue to have concerns around all of that stuff well i mean you look at um california just passed prop 24 right which is kind of the, mm -hmm. the very sort of um embryonic stage of CCPA and and what other states will adopt. Obviously, this all came, you know, as a result of GDPR and Cambridge Analytica. So there is a equal and opposite reaction, you know, to these things happening. Um, and and hopefully it's really more about keeping um, keeping these big companies accountable and continuing to put restraints on what is legal for them to do. While you know, on the web th on web three side of things, we're we're building natively compliant, you know, sort of user focused tools, uh, in which are end up becoming a better option. Um, but I, I do think there, you know, there definitely is some truth to saying that where we are right now, it's very clear, like we can't keep going like this, because we're definitely in a tipping point where things really start to break down, 
And I think, mm. you know, this year more than ever has been the year that your average citizen, right? Like even grandma and grandpa are starting to see that. Uh, like my family um, from back east, they're, you know, they're quite sort of conservative, traditional people. And we've had these arguments for the last sort of five to 10 years while I've been working on this stuff. They didn't really quite see it. And now this year, you know, my dad's sending me um, surveillance capitalism, you know, and he's reading that mm -hmm. book and they're watching the, doc the documentary on Netflix. I think it's starting to become much more uh, evident and sort of uh, on the surface for even your non-technical people. And I, I think that's I think that's promising because awareness is really one of the biggest things that can change this. And our agent interface will help with that as well. You know, when you're browsing the web, it'll start to help you identify just how far your data is going and just what the impact is of putting it in this particular form. But what one thing I think is is key to, to mention, like Ryan said, there's a growing awareness of it. There are also more and more alternatives, particularly when you look at VR. You know, being who I am, I really don't like the idea of giving my you know bio information to Facebook um, you know, mm -hmm. for so many different reasons. Um, but the, the index is doing really well. They're evolving. There's uh, mm -hmm. an interesting-looking new headset, a uh, standalone headset coming from HTC. And surprisingly, the open-source hardware uh, arena is doing really interesting things, um, particularly in AI headsets. Um, so, you know, the, the, the market has progressed exponentially faster than anything we've seen. I'd, I'd love to... Um... Yeah, if you could, if you could point uh, me and any, anyone listening to um, some of the stuff on that open source AR stuff, I'd love to check that out. I haven't come across that. Um, I still just think, you know, even in the standalone market, you know, the Quest will just dominate it for the foreseeable future. Just affordability and brilliance of experience just means, yeah, I, uh, I'm uh, disheartened as a result, ironically. Yeah, um, I mean, what, one of the things I have to keep being reminded of is that people like us, we're at the tip of the spear, and while we see exactly. everybody knows about the Quest, the rest of the world hasn't the foggiest. So while they're building a user base, there's still a pretty limited user base. Um, you know, there's an enormous amount of room for them to be to be swamped by something else. And, and the other thing um, is with that closed mindset means proprietary marketplace, right? Where, um, you know, Oculus has to be the company that's approving everything that's available. And you look at other companies, you know, say like NVIDIA and Epic, which are much more sort of joining forces on this, this, uh, this model outside of that, um, you know, for example, Epic taking the lawsuit to Apple and Google is mm -hmm. because Epic is a company which has actually in some ways surpassed the domination of Apple and Google in terms of, you know, their, their position leading forward for the next decade. Um, and those mobile platforms taking their 30%. It's not a sustainable, you know, sort of environment for, for fair competition. Um, but you do have these companies that aren't FANG that have much different philosophies. And if you look at momentum and, you know, the curve of what comes over the next 10 years, it's actually quite promising that these companies start to pass or, or leapfrog mm -hmm. certain aspects of what, you know, Facebook, Apple, Google uh, have been Absolutely. able to pull off. So, I've also, if you have a look at, sorry, Piers, go on. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, if you look at what Ryan was saying earlier, um, 
you know, about creators. We're not just talking about people who make art or, or you know, people who build video games. Uh, it's anybody, whether they're making steampunk jewelry or they make fan art or whatever. You have a look at the amount of time people put into this sort of stuff. Where it's difficult is getting it out there on the same level as everybody else. You know, you've got to learn so much just to publish a blog or to get the book printed or to, you know, get a, a Twitch stream happening. Um, and you look at the the creativity that goes into things like TikTok videos. They become viral. They're used for all kinds of things. And when people like this can really easily get out there, um, publish themselves, you know, put products, professional-looking products in stores all over the world, you know, interact with people directly, um, then then you've got the renaissance that Ryan's talking about. Everybody has something to share, and now mm-hmm. they'll have the ability to share it uh, in the same yeah. way that everybody else could. And, and as, yeah. as an example of how these how these alliances might work, um, I don't know if you've seen, but recently, you know, Fortnite's obviously been kicked off of the mobile platforms, but it's now um, very soon going to be available back on them through NVIDIA GeForce, right? Which is I haven't seen that. It's kind of a it's really kind of an annex path uh, to 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 the same thing. So do, you know, do you think they'll ban NVIDIA Shield by proxy? I, I don't know. I mean, this is it's really like I said on the last episode. It's it's really a, a war between open and closed mindsets it and how we want you know, how we want because, the future. Yeah, banning banning streaming games um, could cause them a, a lot more problems. I mean, obviously we think Apple are in the wrong. Whether they're legally in the wrong is not up for us us to decide. We have no idea. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, the the idea of keeping things closed, gouging creators. It's not just that there's a moral issue with it, although that's enough in my opinion. It's that it, it is provably not helping the market. You know, indie developers struggle to get their games even seen, let alone purchased. Um, some things are just still too expensive to be done. You know, people with incredible film and storytelling ideas still find it really expensive to put a story together visually. Um, you know, all these different things that get in people's way. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely and to, think to your point, Ryan, you, you, you know, <clears throat> mentioning Epic, obviously, as, a, as some light in the dark, um, I've always been really fond of them. I know people have had some, you know, and then sort of trying to bootstrap the whole Epic game store and sort of um, making all of these exclusives happen and upset a few of the PC gamer community. But I definitely think on the whole, they're awesome. And they're also breeding an entire generation of, um, you know, philosophically aligned people, especially through stuff like that brilliantly done, um, you know, anti-Apple advert in Fortnite and stuff. Uh, I really think that they're drawing attention to it in an interesting way. I know that the other side of the argument is that they're brainwashing children to go and vote against, uh, you know, Apple and whatnot. Sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's uh, always there's always going to be a good and bad side to, to everyone. Yeah. But what there's I would int- say, what I would say with Tim is, if you you watch what's going to happen with Epic over, you know, over the the next short period, is it's going to move more and more towards the user generated model. You know, they they made an investment into Manticore, which is kind of like a Roblox for a little bit of an older crowd. You obviously have Roblox, which is sort of, you know, completely dominant. Not everyone knows the name yet, but they're going public um, and have done incredibly well. Mm-hmm. These these environments are starting to have concerts with millions of people in them, right? Uh, they're opening these tools up. Uh, Roblox CEO is, is famous for saying, like, we don't make content. The entire way that that company operates is by providing tools for developers, young children, teens to actually create games and they pay out $250 million a year, um, you know, back to them. So Epic and Fortnite creative tools, they're going to start to move more to this user generated model. 
And then, you know, to go back to the Renaissance example, the Renaissance didn't happen by a company uh, employing and owning artists, you know, and whipping the chain. It happened with backers like the Medici family, you know, funding this entire sort of brilliant bloom of creation and art and science. And I think taking that approach of just supporting and holding up creators and, uh, and allowing them to do their thing in a fair, open way is the way forward. Um, so if you're a company that's trying to dominate everyone and take uh, you know, a, a cost prohibitive amount of money from what's happening, you're actually stifling innovation. Yeah. And that's what's um, most important. Exactly. I mean, that's why our, our kit is called emergence. You know, what we're looking at is emergent property. And this is these are the kinds of markets people are going to have to start building for. Something that's going to come out that you don't quite expect or you can't really plan for. And this is what happens when you're talking at the scale of billions of people and you start handing them powerful tools for creating user-generated content. And you look at what Epic's doing. What's really interesting to me about that is not only are they starting to recognize the, the power and the uh, enormous amount of hours of creativity that the modding community put in, they're tr having people start to treat these virtual spaces as a serious thing. You know, not only, yeah, you can't argue that it's not a serious thing, the amount of money that is spent on the game, but there's an enormous amount of social interaction happens there. People are building things and hanging out there. There are now concerts and events happening there, and that's just in one game. That combined mm. with us all being thrust into living online over the last six months of pandemic have really made people go, oh, okay, maybe the digital is the third place. Maybe we can actually start treating it like that. And Absolutely. it's that, that change in mindset that really excites me because that's where I've always lived. And I've been waiting to find a way to get there. You know? and, and to me, it is a, a place that creates true equality. And, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, what your story is, how messed up you are, what you look like, where you come from. It, all that matters is what you say and what you do, you know? Absolutely. Um, and that's the kind of world I'd like to get back to, giving you – know, we've gone through this this incredible period of building new technologies, but we're, we're still only coming to the point where we, we accept um, the discipline of creating true user experience to enable the great masses to use these tools. And mm. it's once everybody's – safe and has easy access to all of this stuff that's when we get the emergent marketplaces Absolutely. i just want to i want to add one thing to that because i think it's really important for us to be um abundantly clear that it is very important for us as a company to work with the epics and the nvidias of the world but it is equally as important for us to work with the brilliant communities of motion graphic artists clo and marvelous designers the entire sort of freelance world of, of the real talent that all of these brands and big companies hire to create these worlds, the top 20% of all of this skill set are going to become world builders. And it's just as important for us to be working with, with that community of artists and creators that are independent as it is for us to do the integrations with the giant corporations that really give us scale. Yeah, and that includes things like narrative design, technical art, you know, everything that's involved in this panoply of creating games and films and worlds and experiences. These are the people that will be creating the new worlds and creating the tools for everybody else to modify their own worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all, all very interesting points. Love the emergence approach. Uh, I'm a big believer that, you know, emergent properties of sort of complex systems are, are some of the coolest things in life. Um, 
even down to something like consciousness itself, you know, um, I I think, um, yeah, uh, massively, um, appreciate the point on the, on the roadblocks as well, Ryan. One thing I wanted to ask you on that really quickly, and then we, we, we will move on, um, is, I mean, talking about sort of expecting the unexpected or whatever, um, Gucci and the roadblocks partnership, what do you think, uh, the rationale behind something like that is because at first glance, Gucci isn't, uh, you know, directed towards uh, branding wise isn't directed towards sort of young kids in a game yeah so gucci is a great example um you know i i have moved from london to amsterdam um and i've built a lot of traction with the entire sort of world of fashion innovation and that's both across luxury sort of uh, hot couture and uh streetwear and sneakerheads um all of these brands are thinking you know what what do we do now and some of them are even further you know down the path i think gucci is a great example of somebody who's just done a lot of experiments so the roblox integration that you're referring to is actually through a company called aglet um and you know aglet has basically created sort of a pokemon go style game for sneakerheads uh, and they're allowing for the integration of the shoes to be worn by Roblox avatars. But Genie has also did a partnership with Gucci, and that's being done through, you know, Giphy, the app, and you can start to share that socially. And Gucci's worked with a handful of top digital artists. Um, and so, you know, they're they're really kind of putting some experiments out there in terms of like what is their strategy into the metaverse and you know where we're going um a lot of the other brands you know i'm starting to have conversations with them about this concept we have called designer skins which is looking at you know fortnite does make billions a year selling skins but they're not the only ones that can make that money these brands have a lot of you know sort of affinity and built-in communities and passionate super fans uh that will line up around the block for them and so our approach is how do we create skins, you know, uh, with these brands and how do we create the same effect of a Supreme drop where people line up around the block on the Brea for days? How do we do that in the metaverse? Yeah, you know? it strikes me as, you know, you know, you first need to arrive at some kind of meaningful digital context in which to, um, you know, use them, uh, flex them, whatever. Um, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so we're thinking a lot about NFTs. Um, You know, it it seems like the most exciting part of NFTs is up until you buy them. And then it's a it's kind of a lackluster experience uh, as a collector. Once you own them, you can keep them in your wallet. Uh, In in some cases, you know, you can you can get a plot of land and hang them up in Somnium space, which which is very cool. You start to get more immersive with it. But, you know, with with our approach, we really want to turn uh, the collector's experience into, um, you know, a game. And so we're thinking about how to build game mechanics. So you're not just collecting and showing it off. You're a part of, you know, the great game together. And, um, that game can actually advance, you know, how the open metaverse comes together and expands collectively where everyone has a stake in it. Everyone's contributing and, you know, they're representing themselves in that, and and it's also just you know it's a fun thing to be a part of. Sure, um, Toby, I'm curious. Uh, you touched upon it earlier. You know, this idea of smashing different technologies together. Um, 
I suppose, first of all, what are the kind of the main technical constraints that you've sort of come up against? And also, what are the most sort of promising tools and solutions that uh, you are working with to achieve this ultimate goal? Yeah, it's one of the important advantages we have is that we're not trying to build all this sort of stuff ourselves. We're not building a new blockchain or, or an identity service or any of these sorts of things. We're kind of creating the the plumbing in between them and, and a good UI to sit on top. And you know, we've been working with things like um, levering Hyperledger Indie, which is open source software for blockchains. It's the basis of the sovereign blockchain. Uh, trying to lever that into game engines, um, you know, making some changes in that to, to make that kind of thing work or get some of the advanced blockchain crypto stuff working in WebAssembly so we can make it work on the web. And that, that's really where we have a lot of our, our issues is um, taking stuff that's and doing things that it wasn't made for. Um, but we've gotten to a point now where we've got to know a lot of a lot of different software groups and we work with them to, to sort of build new bits and pieces. Um, and that, that's the fun part. It's sort of seeing what what can be done with things um, and you know more and more tool makers and software builders especially in the open source community are building things that are thoughtfully constructed in such a way that you can start stringing them together uh, in large quantities and make interesting new things mm-hmm. so one of the ones i looked at recently was matrix uh, matrix.org um, it's a communications protocol uh, and it, it does chat basically uh, it can do a lot of things um, text chat voice chat that kind of thing but it uses a number of different technologies to allow you to have decentralization, secure encrypted communication, things like that. So that's one of the things that we're building into our, our system. And we have a, uh, you know, a, a super private chat where you make peer-to-peer only connections and no server in between, that kind of thing. So th- th- these kinds of technologies, they, they just, they move things forward in leaps and bounds, but they've got groups behind them. You know, it's not just one person coming up with something. There's a whole bunch of people throwing around ideas, voting on them. You know, grinding them down, making them better, and and that's it's that kind of community of people that make something um, extraordinary like that. Mm. Um, I'm also curious on how kind of I, I guess for both of you, uh, you're thinking around NFTs and crypto has evolved uh, in the context of the metaverse. I mean, obviously at, at first glance, NFTs present a really interesting solution to the problem of sort of digital uniqueness and scarcity, ownership rights, um, obviously crypto more broadly for sort of digitally native value transfer across these worlds. Um, yeah, so could jump in. Well, I've been a bit of a skeptic on crypto for a while um, because a lot of projects out there, there really isn't a great deal of value in them to me apart from speculation. Uh, and more recently, we've seen some useful things come out like, um, you know, decentralized organizations and, and those sorts of things and some more true utility tokens. And we've started to come up with some designs uh, for building token systems ourselves. Uh, and in particular, we've been looking at the trade in NFTs um, in art and in collectibles and that kind of thing. But we, we've been designing for a while now this concept of you know, portable tokens, the idea of something that can be properly tokenized and managed but shifted from place to place. So we want the agent interface to provide you with an inventory that lets you fiddle around with your tokens like they're you know a sword or a piece of armor or something in your inventory something that you you feel a little bit more tactile and in particular you know i grew up in cornwall in the uk in a culture of people that that traded swap cards and and marbles and things like that um, and ryan has been part of the sneakerhead culture and, and those sorts of things and you know this collector's mentality is something that never really goes away you know the generation before me all the kids in the uk would collect 
bits of World War II memorabilia they'd find around the UK. You know, it, it, this sort of concept is something that always comes with us, and it, it's in our games as well. Um, you, from random things that people do, like I remember I used to collect one of every piece of armor and, and weapon that I found in the Elder Scrolls games. I don't know why. I would just leave them on the floor in a house that I'd stolen. Um, and, you know, I did that for a very long time. But then there are lots of games that build in the collection, you know, the, whether it's build, collecting things for achievement or, you know, building up a, a little collection of things that do something for you when you play an MMORPG. So I, I think it's something that's intrinsic to people. And I really want to build a, an interface that allows you to kind of enjoy your collection, not just make it easier to get them, but to sit and enjoy them. You know, I was one of those kids that we never had the um, the cards ourselves. We would build our collection from the spares that other kids would give the poor kids. <laughs> and, you know, often it wasn't about, you know, we, we wouldn't have very good collections, so we wouldn't be involved in the games or the trades or anything like that. But for us it was for more about sitting and enjoying them, you know, pouring over our collections, whether they're of cards or stones or marbles or whatever. And I think people want to be able to do that with, with whatever they've got, whether it's looking at their books on a bookshelf or going through the memes that they've got. You know, and I think we need something that satisfies that craving in the digital world. And that's what we're, we're trying to build around the concept of NFTs without trying to sort of exclude any from any particular source. Mm-hmm. And for, for me, uh, you know, NFTs for a little while didn't, um, didn't totally click, but I think... I've been reflecting on this year and, you know, obviously a lot of forms of, of entertainment um, have diminished, right? Like you don't go to the movie theater. There's not really new productions. TV shows are, are, you know, not really coming out. Netflix is, you know, Netflix and Amazon are, are, are okay, but it, it's really kind of, oh, and spe- specifically sports for a while, um, you know, had stopped. And, it's around the time that, you know, my generation, the 90s kids are having ki- having kids of their own that are now old enough to start getting into things. And so you've seen this like explosion of collectibles again with whether it's sports cards or Pokemon cards at the same time that Web3 with NFTs is providing the perfect technology for digital collectibles and gaming is sort of becoming, you know, the, the most favorite pastime for people. And when you look at a combination of gaming and collectibles, those are two things that will, you know, greatly enhance adoption of the technology of Web3 from people who don't care about crypto at all. And so, you know, with NFTs, you get the entire world of artists and creatives and designers who are now starting to utilize the financial incentive of the technology and adopt it and use it. And, you know, with what we're doing, uh, Crucible will do the same thing with gaming. And so the two of those together really give this ability to kind of scale that. Um, And so now I kind of look at NFTs or more largely non-fungible assets in Web3 as like snapshots of the metaverse, right? You Mm -hmm. have like little pictures or looping videos with audio. But we want to provide something that can like breathe life into these things through the avatar layer and then give mm-hmm. you all of the bridges to go take that into the metaverse as it gets more and more open. And so I think over time, NFCs will become much more long form, much more immersive, much more dynamic, you know, and, and will, will ultimately kind of be one of the main primitives that make the economy of, of the metaverse possible. 
Awesome. Toby, I, I realize um yet to sort of ask you this question. I asked Ryan last time he was on. Um, you, you do strike me as a bit of a metaverse maximalist as much as there could be one. But um, <laughs> to, to, to what extent do you subscribe to this idea? You know, how far do you think it will go? And I guess, um, you know, what do you see out there on the kind of periphery of, of the conceivable metaverse? Um, I think forward to when everybody's wearing mixed reality glasses, right? Now, there, there is a point to this. The progression of where we're going from here to there, what Ryan and I are building, both in the short term and the long term, and what a lot of other people are working towards, whether or not they realize it, is to the point where the mixed reality glasses are, you could take them as a symbol for a personal computing device but we're not that far away from having a decent pair of glasses you can wear in the street where as you're wandering around things can be identified for you you could identify the bird in the background you could translate a sign in front of you you could get nutritional information on the can of beans you're looking at you could learn about something you don't understand on the front of a building whatever it happens to be you are now walking around with the power of the internet and the power of millions of creative people who've created all kinds of tools that you can just keep adding to your life experience. Now that, that I believe is, is, is edging towards a singularity. That is a point beyond which we don't know what it's going to be like to be human. Now there's a whole long way to go in terms of everybody getting that, you know, it'll be the rich white people first. And there's all this sort of stuff that's got to be done from education to housing, to, you know, basic access to technology um, for people all around the world, on every part of the world. But once we get there, we're talking about an experience of life that has never been had before and, and at a level at which I don't think we really understand what's going to come from it. You know, when everybody you talk to could find out anything they wanted to in an instant, when nobody can be lost, nobody can be alone unless they want to be, when no one could be forced to see content they don't want to see or surprised by it, when people are protected and when people can make a basic living off their everyday data without it even being linked to them or you know, turn whatever it is they do in life into something that can cover their expenses and give them options. That's, that's a, a really big sea change, and that's what I'm aiming for. Um, you know, since I was a kid on bulletin boards and things like this, uh, I think something that people don't understand about this metaverse is it's always been here in one form or another. Just a few of us have had access to it in different pockets. And what's happening now is the convergence of technologies over the last few years blockchain, um, you know, neural technology, even gaming technology, robotics, AR, VR, all these things at once, they're giving us the opportunity to really link all of these things up, experiences back from the 70s and 80s all the way to now and, and what's coming. And it's the ability to make connections in a way I think a lot of people who haven't spent a lot of time online don't really understand. Because when you can safely and honestly make a connection with someone online when you can find communities to be involved with and you can talk to people and you can remove all of the crap that comes from the loud hailers of a few on social media or the algorithm of this company <clears throat> then you start to hear the rest of life you know you start to be able to speak to it and with it and now everything's a little bit different 
And that that's really what I think can happen in the metaverse. You, you, you get the ability to be who you want and do what you want, identify yourself the way you want, and the consequences are only from what you do. You know, the, the, you, you're not going to be judged by who and what you are, and there's an opportunity for everybody to find that if we build technology the right way. And, and I think in some ways that can help move us towards people starting to jumpstart that in life generally. Mm, absolutely. I really love that idea of the metaverse singularity. And yeah, I, I suppose I do agree that beyond that point, it's it's probably meaningless to even speculate about where we might go because um, it's such a dramatic and fundamental change to the, the human experience. Um, but as you say, very long way to go in, in getting there. There's still, what, 40% of the global population that don't have basic internet connectivity. Yeah. Got a long, long way to go. Um, yeah. Uh, before we head into the kind of closing questions here, um, I guess I'd, I'd like to know from both of you, really, what, what one thing that's become clear to you since you embarked on this mission two years ago, uh, to this day, actually, for those listening, um, uh, that you wish you'd known before. Toby, you take that first. I need to think. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I think it's it's a combination of timing and luck and and hard work by Ryan. But I, I wish I'd known earlier that I should just lean harder into where we really want to go. Um, because you know now it's it's okay to talk about the metaverse. <laughs> when we started, it really still wasn't, um, and we you know we were still dallying around with spatial computing and, and lots of other terms and trying to help people understand what VR was. Um, but now we've gotten to a point where enough people understand this concept and have been forced into it that uh, yeah, I wish I'd just told myself to go hard for it right from the beginning. Awesome. Yeah, I think. I think in hindsight, there's no possible way when we started this, uh, I incorporated the company two years ago today. There's no way that we could have known um, what was going to happen in 2020 and the level of acceleration that we would see. You know, we, we often say something that as a startup, we could have been given a billion dollars to spend on marketing. And we would not have seen the sort of behavioral change that we have seen this year. And I think that really becomes evident. Um, for example, on January 27th, we partnered with VentureBeat for an event called Into the Metaverse, which is sponsored by Facebook, but it has Epic, NVIDIA, Roblox, the entire gaming industry for the specific purpose of talking about the challenges and opportunities of the metaverse. So what we're doing is so much bigger than us as a startup. It would have been very difficult to know that we were actually on the right path when we chose to lean into metaverse two years ago, um, when really everyone else was kind of more referring to it by other, other terms and metaverse was completely sci-fi. And the only thing people would grasp was Ready Player One. Now you have this consensus, uh, definitely in gaming and even beyond gaming, that you know this is where we go next. And where we've gotten to since then has really been a product of a lot of hard work and feedback loops. 
but I think just like Toby, it would be, it would have been something really exceptional to, to have known that this was going to happen because we would have just gone even harder, I think. And, and to be fair, we've doubled and tripled down. We're completely all in, you know, um, there's a million. Yeah, we just wouldn't have had to do so much work on alternate messaging. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a million opportunities, which, you know, we, we could have given up in the middle of a global pandemic, but I think, you know, even with the resolve that we have, knowing how 2020 has gone and where we sit today and what we're about to do on January 27th, like uh, I, it would have been nice to have that positive reinforcement. Yeah. The only other thing I'd say is that just I would have told us that, yes, Outlier Ventures is definitely the right choice. Which I did. And, and, here yeah. we are. <laughs> and in fact, we're in thinking about this now. It's really interesting because you know, they have their convergence stack and we're shaping up our emergence stack and they really do kind of fit uh, one on the other as, as really kind of the web three stack that, that can be picked, you know, so people have the choice to create their own personal stack from all of this technology and the user agent that emergence SDK provides for them is the interface moment for how, you know, everyday people will actually be able to operate within that you know, easily with a couple of clicks. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Ryan, I asked you this one last time and, and, and you gave a great answer on it, but I thought Toby might want to add some color. Um, you know, and I, I suppose as, as concise as possible, uh, you know, what do you see as the primary path to adoption for this idea of a metaverse? Uh, it's having something that people want and can easily get, I think. Uh, and I think... This idea of digital property, you know, that's why we're in gaming, the idea of skins and collectibles and, and all these sorts of things. They're ideas that never really go away. They just present in different forms. And I think doing something like that, it's about getting that large user base involved and proving that a lot of people from different walks of life can use this technology without having to really worry about it, be secure, be safe, have these new benefits but, you know, not really have to do anything more, maybe even a bit less than what they used to do. Hmm. The strength of that user base is what's then going to help us push from that side towards corporates, whether it be forcing platforms to, you know, authenticate with the user via SSI or, you know, pushing um, corporate groups or, um, uh, sorry, what's the word, legislators, to start doing something about people who aren't treating data right, it's it's sort of building sure. that community push. Yeah, it leads me in, uh, leads me into what I wanted to ask next. It's I actually have I have something to build off of my last answer on that. Um, so I think more and more the path to adoption is through subcultures. Right. Two two examples would be say you know streetwear, fashion, and collectibles or music. Right. You, you see a lot of uh, musicians start to think about um, becoming an avatar and performing to people all over the world digitally at the same time. Um, you know, going into subcultures specifically and helping them figure out what their sort of direct to avatar strategy is, um, is I think the right adoption path for everybody, but specifically, you know, how we're going to look at the next year. And it's interesting when you look at the formation of the original internet, even before there was the internet, it was subcultures that pushed this stuff, whether it be particular groups of nerds or hackers or, 
you know, pirates or, you know, um, subversive literary people or even just fans of particular bands. They were the ones that were creating bulletin boards and then early websites and, and these sorts of things. And in strange ways, they sort of pushed the development of the technology in the early days. And kind of a, a beautiful thing about that is, you know, now we're in this world of social media with red feeds and blue feeds and everything is pushed to one side and you kind of live in, you know, alternate and, and um, contradicting realities that are funded by sort of these platforms and the advertising model. And it's kind of just pointing fingers. Um, when you go to subcultures and you really get involved, those two sides become much more abstract and you see the diversity, right? When you go into like uh, streetwear or sneakerhead culture, like there's no one race or one background or one gender. It's, it's, it's really sort of much better represented. Um, so I think subcultures is also potentially a, a really great way to get out of this, you know, binary sort of polar um, model that we have right now with sort of left versus right. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I was going to, I definitely agree with sort of, uh, you know, the subculture component. I can see, you know, the, the sort of strength of allegiance between those, um, you know, really solid sort of smaller communities. We're now, you know, through crypto seeing um, the tools sort of extended to them to provide these really sort of robust kind of micro economies in those climates too. I can see how those would all add up to be something meaningful. But, you know, a, a lot of people like to point out um, that, how strong the disincentives are for the incumbents um, and, you know, that there isn't really a business case to sort of support all of this yet. Um, so I suppose in terms of like business models, uh, what do you think will eventually sort of dominate that, that will support this? Hmm. Um, well, you know, I think it's proven that this sort of optimized advertising model, which kind of, commoditizes human attention is is no good we shouldn't do that um there are a lot of really kind of interesting things that um you know have been demonstrated by companies like supreme where you kind of collaborate brands together and create experiences meant for the users enjoyment and you know you get the sales because of you know the the mindset of collecting and collectors and a lot of people might not really understand collecting. They might think like this person collects a bunch of stuff and it's in a room in their house and it's just material objects. But if you, if you shift collecting and collectibles into one part art, one part nostalgia and one part investment potential, you start to see why people are so passionate about it. And for example, like I know a couple of people who were, like almost suicidally depressed with their job and their lifestyle. And then they quit and they're having the time of their life collecting Pokemon cards again with their kids. And it's just a, a, an amazing reason for them to like wake up and get into the day. And now because of, you know, the sort of the market on a run, it's also a way for him to generate income and even long-term investment potential. So, uh, you know, I know to a lot of people, they don't understand it or it doesn't make sense, but realize that like this is it's fun for people and it's it's uh, it's great for mental health. And it's like 
a really great way for people to kind of combat some of the things that we're dealing with because of the idea of a commoditized human in a cubicle on a feed, you know, which is where we live now. And so um, I hope I hope that the business models that we can help encourage do that more, you know, and, and people can find more enjoyment and better mental health. And I think it's interesting when you look at how well sites like eBay and Etsy and various other sites do, you know, the secondary markets for things that don't allow people to sell their own things, like people who sell gold in WoW and things like that. You know, there's obviously the ability, the, um, the drive to put these sorts of things together. The biggest problem with capitalism is that it's predatory and that it, it puts the power in the hands of those who already have the power and the wealth. You know, what if nobody could stop you getting your product to market? You know, what if it was as easy for you to run a web publishing campaign and make a product available on the web, whether it's for sale to be shipped or whether it's a digitally downloaded product that needs to be protected or whatever. What if you could do all of that by clicking a few buttons? Now, what if everybody could do that and do it in a way that can't be taken down, that is community moderated, not enforced by a platform or driven by an opaque algorithm? Now anybody can do what they want, whether it's, you know, services or creating products or making craft or doing art, everybody can participate. Mm, absolutely. Definitely think it's uh, <clears throat> exciting territory we're heading towards. Um, Toby, I wanted to ask you as part of the closing questions, uh, what, what is your favorite video game? Ever? Yeah. Okay, I've been thinking about this one um, and I find it really hard. Uh, I have a bit of a twee answer, if you'll uh, forgive me. Um, my favourite games are stealth games um, because I like to be sneaky and stabby and I like to steal things. Um, but the best gaming experiences I've, I've ever had have been entirely text-based. They've been uh, multi-user dungeons online. Um, and really, I've been developing a game, which I now I used to call reality um, because it deliberately blurs the lines between what's in the game and what's in real life. Um, now it's called The Great Game, uh, and it starts with this collectible system that works across games, across worlds, across franchises. Just the idea of the joy of collecting, of trading, of sharing, of owning, whether it's art or Pokemon cards or whatever. Uh, but it expands out to the you know, the game that I've been playing in my head since I'm a kid. You know, I, I'm, I'm a weirdo by nature. I'm autistic. I see things in a certain way, and since I first saw um, the really badly graphically created uh, Elite on an Amstrad. I saw into the computer, I saw 3D, and I thought that's where things live and that's where I want to go. And that's where I found friends and that's where I found power, I found education, I found the ability to go and find out how to do things I wanted to do or educate myself or meet interesting people. And I wanted that for everybody. Um, and, and I've always been building in my head this game that I can play constantly and every game I play is somehow in my head linked you know I've got these ongoing characters in my head and it's all about learning lots of different skills doing things in different places in different ways you know I, I play Thief um, which is one of my favorites and Deus Ex they have very similar sorts of skills and they're not in any way the same as when I play Elder Scrolls Online but understanding the concepts, the experience of playing helps me in my new game. And I want ways to sort of create that for people. You know, the ultimate sort of uh, live role-playing game, both online and offline, added to in, in everything that you do, 
you know, that, that's kind of, that, that's the game I want to create. That, that's really a lot of what I'm doing. I'm getting everybody set up so that they can be safe and secure and equitable online, and then I can turn the whole world into my personal game. <laughs> Love it. Um, sounds, sounds quite like Halliday's plan, in fact. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, as somewhat distinct from the game side of things, what is the most impact, impactful digital experience you've ever had? Ah. Uh. Okay, most impactful digital experience I've ever had. Ah, oh, there've been a lot. I've lived a surprising amount of my life online. You know, I, I have only known I'm autistic for a couple of years, but I've always known I live inside my head and it's a world I struggle to share with other people. But to me, the connections between computers, you know, the, the relationships I make inside them, they all live in this sort of spatially visualized system in my head. Um, and so I spent a lot of time online and there've been a couple of events. You know, there's a book I like to tell people about. It's called My Tiny Life um, by Julian Dibbard, I think. He talks about this event in a, an online moo. It's like playing a text adventure game, like a multi-user dungeon, but it's just for being there, for hanging out, right? You move into the lounge room. There's a description of the lounge room. There's people talking. It sounds really lame, but you'd be amazed at how intense this can get. You play it for long enough you have genuine relationships with these people. And people talk about these kinds of relationships and connections that you make with other players and things online as being ephemeral or, or not real. But you can actually jump to a surprisingly deep connection with someone because there's none of the bollocks. There's no worrying, especially in text. You know, you're not worrying about what anybody looks or sounds like, what colour they are, whether they're tall or short or ugly or whatever. You're just talking to them. And so you jump through this whole set of, of social conditioning and layers of, of rubbish that we've built up around each other. And you can make really deep connections with people. And, you know, it's always easier to talk honestly to a stranger. And so you can become very close to people in a very short amount of time. And some of these environments you'll spend years in. And in this book, um, he talks about a, an effort where one of the, the players had gotten sort of control of the game and was able to make characters do things, which basically amounted to it's suddenly reading on the screen that you've done something to yourself or something has happened to you. And it sounds like a really trivial thing, but it was deeply traumatizing for a, a couple of people, women in particular, who, who um, this guy did, did imaginary things to. And I had a similar experience. I was playing uh, the Discworld mod, and one of the players I'd become really close to for some reason, we just randomly met and we did lots of sneaky things around the game together. And something happened... And he kind of just decided to quit and he handed me all of his, his really hard-won items and things like that. This is a text game. It's made by volunteers. It's been around for years and years and it's absolutely fantastic if you love Discworld and Terry Pratchett. But I don't know this guy. I don't know his real name. I don't know how old he is. I think he lives in Australia somewhere. Um, and we've been playing this game together for a few months and I was absolutely devastated. And I was, what, I had to be at least 30 years old? And I'm, you know, I'm a bit older than average anyway, but I was gutted for a good fortnight. Now, some of that's just the way I am, but it, it was a really deeply affecting experience. You know, something had happened, I felt like I'd contributed to it, and he'd been playing for ages longer than me. And, you know, the end of the story is he eventually came back and it was all good. But it was such a deeply wrenching experience to me. This person I didn't know, didn't have any other connection with than his three-letter name in the game. Um, you know, I was deeply upset to have affected his gaming life and feel like he was, uh, you know, making this change and I was somehow part of that. And it just goes to highlight for me how important 
the ability to make connections with people is and how often people underestimate the ways that can be done. You know, we look at what's on the TV or in movies and what's celebrated. It's going out there, you know, throwing a ball, dancing, doing the things outside. There are lots of different ways people connect, whether they are shy or just not interested in certain areas of life or disabled or whatever it happens to be. There are lots of different ways that people make connections and Mm -hmm. technology should enable that and enable people to make it in a way that's safe and, and entirely on their terms, whatever their situation happens to be. And, you know, that's that's the, the kind of stuff that interests me. Absolutely. You know, that, a... that actually reminds me of a conversation I was having recently. Um, there's a, a comedian named Thomas Middleditch, and he and his sort of like really close friends, it's probably five or six of them, just completed a three-year Dungeons & Dragons game. And it went on for three years. And it was just this thing between this group of people, an ongoing rolling experience where they, they're comedians. So they, they really leaned into the storytelling, first person, third person. And then as life went on for three years, it would actually anchor in wages when something happened in the real world. It would always come back to this ongoing epic story of three years that they were collectively creating together. And no one else was a part of it. And if anyone else asked questions about it, you couldn't really describe it. It would be like trying to describe a dream to someone, right? They don't care. It's just this thing that is a part of this group of people and that's it forever. It's ephemeral. And, and you know, when they ended technology it- technology lets everybody do that. Yeah, when they ended it, they all cried. Like it was, it was like a real sad and bittersweet kind of experience, even though it was all fantasy it was all imaginary but it had become such a core part of them and their relationship together and it was something that would never be sort of repeated again and and you know whatever that is is the same thing that team sports is or um, being a fan of a certain team or even patriotic for a country like that that's the thing that sort of that binds people together and with the open metaverse you know, we have the opportunity through all different kinds of subcultures to kind of create that experience for people mm-hmm. um, in whatever way they want to curate that and however many people are part of that group. And that, that's real mm-hmm. emergence. That's something something truly real coming out of what someone else has built. You know, some people using it in a way that they choose and they've created something that creates intensely real memories for them and improves their life. That's what it really should be about. And if everybody can do that in whatever way they choose and with the people they choose and only the people they choose, then you've got the, the potential to um, you know, create new areas of people's lives that are just as important as what we currently see as, as being the main focus. And I mean, we see like, you know, RNG, random number generator, the, these groups that are popping up that will be sort of the, the sort of uh, cornerstones of that kind of stuff. And it's where we see the intersection of, you know, the crypto world, the gaming world, um, the world of a lot of sort of fans of Dungeons and Dragons type things and, and the sort of the blend of all of that together, plus all of the sort of mainstream things like fashion and music, that is how we're going to see adoption. Sure. Right, guys, we're running up on an hour and a half here. So um, unfortunately, we may need to uh, may need to stop things there. But um, Ryan, you mentioned there's the upcoming event on the 27th of January. 
Um, if people want to find out more information on that and, and keep track in Crucible, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, so like I said, this is two years to the day since, you know, we've got this started. The whole first year was about really understanding the identity piece of this. The whole second year was about really understanding the gaming side of this and the business model. And the entire next year will be where we start to, you know, bring this to the world and, you know, hold our hands open and, and say, you know, come join us, and be a part of this. So if any of this is interesting to you from, you know, whatever corner of the world or, or whatever stakeholder you are, go to our website, it's crucible.network. Um, send me your email so that we can keep you on the list for updates. I will be speaking at Beyond 2020 in the UK on December 2nd. That's beyondconference.com. And then on January 27th, um, we will be sort of a, a main partner of Into the Metaverse with VentureBeat and Facebook. Um, obviously, Facebook is going to drive it into uh, one direction. And it's important for us to be, you know, the voice uh, to to really kind of represent why the Metaverse should stay open and be open. Um, and if you're a game developer, we're, uh, we're going to open sort of our alpha that moves into the beta very soon. Um, we're going to keep it closed for right now, but definitely next year, um, we're going to begin to open it up to more developers. So if, uh, if that is interesting to you, then please go to our website and uh, submit your name to the, uh, to the alpha signup page on the developer section, uh, and we will be in touch. We're also very interested to hear about anybody who's uh, deeply into crypto or NFTs, uh, NFTs, sorry, or the trading and sort of collectibles community in general. Awesome. Well, thank you both very much. Appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you guys both back on at some point next year for uh, for an update on how things are going. Thanks, Absolutely. Appreciate it.